You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. How's everyone doing? Good? All right. Awesome. I love the nine. Um, If you are new, uh, right underneath your seat is a visitor card, and we would love for you to fill that out. We would love to tell you a little bit more about Stonegate, who we are as a church, and also all the incredible things that God does throughout the week, not just on Sunday, that really make us family. So if you would love to get further connected, find out more about what's going on at Stonegate, who we are, and just also let us know who you are, fill this out, and we will make sure to get in touch with you and follow up with you. Um, We are in the second week of our Life of a Disciple series, and we are looking at what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. So last week, we wanted to be very clear on what that meant uh, and also what it looks like to to be a follower of Jesus. And this week, we're going to unpack how we do that, how we do that. Uh, As we get started, though, let me pray and just ask God to be with us and to help us and to change us as his word goes forward. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. And we just ask that all of us would have hearts that are receptive and soft and humble and would come under the conviction and the encouragement that you would have for each and every one of us, that your word is alive and active and does not return void. So Lord, have your way with us. And so may the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be exceptionally pleasing to you. Amen. Um, years ago, I was a, uh, a youth pastor at a church in Las Vegas, and there was this lady, she was an incredible volunteer in the ministry, and she loved to have people over for dinner. And she basically would promise and swear up and down that she made the best apple pie in the entire world. This was kind of her claim to fame. It was her identity. It was her deal. And so she kept telling me, you got to come over, you got to come over. I want to make you apple pie. You're going to love my apple pie. My apple pie is the best apple pie in the history of all apple pies. If there was a, a world fair for apple pies, I would get the blue ribbon for apple pies. And she would tell and proclaim, and she was so excited, had so much enthusiasm, so much energy about the goodness of her apple pies and her ability to make apple pie. Here was the one problem, though. I don't like apple pie. I think it's gross, okay? Apples are not meant to be squishy. They're meant to be crunchy. And so no matter how good her apple pie is, even if her apple pie recipe came from Betty Crocker herself, I was not going to like her apple pie. It wasn't a matter of did she do a good job making it, it's what she was making. And was it what I had an appetite for? Is it what I really wanted? Now sometimes I think even the church gets caught up in this. We make things that might be great, but is it really what Jesus has asked us to make? Is it what Jesus really wants us to make? Do we ever stop and pause and ask ourselves that? In all the hustle, in all the programs, in all the events, in all the activities of church, do we make what's pleasing to Jesus? Are we busy about making a bunch of apple pies with our life? Now, I, could, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything for us to figure out and be more confident in that we're honestly making what Jesus asked us to make. So we talked last week about what it means to be a disciple. What it means, and we wanted to provide a very clear definition, and here's why. Definitions matter greatly, right? If I'm to tell you how to get to, to, to someone's house or to tell you to go to the store and buy something, you're gonna to wanna to know exactly what I'm talking about. Definitions matter. And so we use the definition of someone who's becoming more like Jesus in all of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what a disciple is. Someone who's going to follow Jesus, all of your life becomes a laboratory, becomes an environment. It becomes a setting in which this incredible drama is unfolding of you becoming more like Jesus. And all of your hurts and celebrations and excitements and and victories and losses and sorrows and suffering, Jesus is conforming and forming you to become more like him. 
And it's not something you do of your own accord, but rather Jesus does in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what this does is this expands the confines of discipleship way beyond just a classroom or a program or an event, but rather it takes place in the theater of your entire life. And this gives meaning and substance and density in some ways to all of our life, our work, our relationships, our marriage, our parenting, our education, all of that. And so what we want to look at today is how do we go about making other disciples? Because really, that's what Jesus is doing. We read the Great Commission, and the Great Commission is exactly that. It's a commission to go out and make disciples. So we need to be very clear on what Jesus means by that. Now, here, I want to give you guys two common pitfalls I think the church has fallen into when it comes to making disciples. These are things that often, because of our context and our culture, we begin to get the illusion that this is really what it means to make a disciple. The first one's going to come up on the screen for you. It's the information model of making a disciple, the information model. So we think if we get the right verses or principles or key passages or mass education, a cognitive approach, a mental-driven approach, that really then people will become more like Jesus. And this is way too reductionistic. This is just a sliver it because primarily you're not just a brain on a stick, but you're a worshiping being. Inside your heart has desires and ambitions and wants and hopes and longings and those fuel you and they drive you. And this approach toward discipleship often is if I just learn more, if I just know more, then I'll do better. And we all know this is a lie, right? Like if you were to go to Barnes, I don't know, Barnes and Noble still exists. Maybe Amazon's put them out of business. But if you were to go to a bookstore, you would see a whole section of self-help. You would see a whole section on finance and health and all these areas. So all the information's out there, but really, what's the problem? What's the problem with information? It's the application. And where does the application come in? That, once again, becomes a worshiping issue, not just an information issue. And so sometimes we get trapped in the mindset of, I just need to know more. I need to know more. I need to know more. But what does the Bible tell us? Actually, the Bible tells us that demons, even demons who don't love God, who don't love Jesus, they know more, way more than I'll ever know or you'll ever know. James tells us that even the demons believe. And here's the thing, the demons have great theology. The demons know the Bible. They know exactly who God is. Here's the problem. They hate God and they hate the things of God and they want nothing to do with God. So having all the information clearly doesn't lead to transformation. You need more than just information for transformation. And here's what happens too. Sometimes too much information without application, without transformation leads to arrogance. Paul gives us this same warning, doesn't he? What does he say? He says, knowledge puffs up. Have you ever been around a know-it-all when it comes to God or the Bible or theology? I mean, it's, it's pretty noxious. It's not a pleasant odor. They're not fun to be around. They're not life-giving. Too much information without application actually leads to arrogance. So it's a, it's a dead end when we come and think that that is the primary or only way that we become discipled. Another one is behavioral. Behavioral. And this is, in some ways, if we can contort and form and bubble wrap our life in a way that we find a way to just get our behaviors in the right way, that really we become more like Jesus, that really Jesus was a moral teacher that came to, in some ways, snap you into line and to get you to behave the right way. Even if you have to white knuckle it and grit it out your whole entire life, just grit your teeth, settle in, and follow Jesus, because doggone it, it's the right thing to do. Your parents did it, your culture does it, your friends do it, your youth group did it, like everyone did it, so just abide by the right behaviors. You know, it's like a life that's just one constant job interview. I mean, always think about a job interview, right? Everyone's on their best behavior in a job interview. 
use the right language, you sit up straight, your posture is good, you know, you're, 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 you're being super proactive and kind and thoughtful and engaging and winsome, but really, how long can you keep that up? Because deep inside you're like, man, I really hope I get this job so I can just take a breath and be who I really am. And Jesus doesn't want us to go through life with one big, giant job interview. It's this idea that if we're, we're doing better, therefore we are better. But once again, that falls right into the trap of moralism. That what it means to be a follower of Jesus is just to get your act right, to clean yourself up. And here's the truth of the gospel. The message of the gospel is about as anti-moralistic as you can get. You can't clean yourself up. You can't get your act together. You need grace. You need a new life. You need a new heart. That's the message of the gospel. And here's the thing about both of these. Here's why I think, especially as Americans, we fall into the trap for both of these models, is both of them are highly individualistic. They lend toward individualism. They have nothing to do usually with a corporate gathering or a family of believers or inviting other people into our life or allowing a relational mindset and posture when it comes to our formation. They're much more self-centered. So let's look at Matthew 18 and let's just see Jesus' words. It's gonna come up on the slide again and you have it in your Bibles if you want to. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? That's utterly fascinating. Don't just skip right by it. It's not a throwaway line. I mean, this is why I love the Bible. It puts these things in there that if you read slowly, it'll blow your mind. Some doubted. The 11 disciples, check this out. Guys that have been with Jesus for three years, they've been following him around. They watched him turn water into wine. They watched him feed 5,000. They watched him walk on water. Then they watched him go to the cross, kill death, get out of the grave. And they're still like, eh, not sure about this Jesus thing. Still got some doubts. Verdict's still out. I mean, this is a tough crowd to please, right? Some of them are still doubting. But does Jesus kick them out because of their doubt? Absolutely not. Jesus welcomes the doubter. He realized that often what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you're gonna have doubts along the way. And doubts are not an impediment to being a disciple of Jesus. Rather, our, our doubts will often fuel our following of Jesus as we lean in, as we remind ourselves that he tells us he's the truth, the way, and the life. So even when you don't have all the answers, you can still continue to follow Jesus. Verse, eight, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, all authority. You check that out. I mean, Jesus doesn't have much he's working with at the moment. He just has 11 guys in this situation. Now, true, he's defeated death, but he's got 11 guys and he's just saying, all authority is mine. That's a bold claim because otherwise Jesus is commissioned. And you gotta understand, they don't even know what the ends of the earth are on this planet. And Jesus is telling them to go to the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel. This is delusional unless you have all authority. Jesus is saying for his disciples, as you guys go forward, as you go into your workplaces, as you go across the world, into the nations, and over the next couple thousand years as the gospel unfolds, I will be with you. And Jesus has kept that promise. We're literally seeing the fulfillment. You and I today are the fulfillment of Matthew 28. Here we are 2,000 years later because all authority did belong to Jesus as he passed out the commission to these 11 disciples. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now what's really interesting about that, especially in verse 19, he says, as you go, 
as you go is the way to really translate the words there, what he's saying. He's saying, as you go about life, go and make disciples. It's a continuing verb. It's a, it's a verb that, that connotates in some ways that not necessarily just going across the nations, but as you go throughout your life, as you go to the store, as you go to the mall, as you go to work, as you go to recreating, whatever it is, you are to make disciples. It's a universal command. And here's the thing about it. As I read the Great Commission, and trust me, there's been times in my life where I've wanted to find it. I've always looked to see if there was a footnote at the bottom where it didn't apply to me. Like, okay, is this for everyone else? Or is this just for some Christians? Is this just for super Christians or varsity Christians? And here's the thing. There's no footnote at the bottom. It's for all of us. It's a universal command. It's not just for preachers and teachers and paid church staff or, or, or whoever, or those who have followed Jesus long enough or those who have their act together, but rather the command, the commission to make disciples applies to you this morning. Now, Christian, if you're sitting here, let that rest upon you. Feel that weight. Wrestle with that reality. Because in that footnote reality where we sometimes want to excuse ourselves from that, right? We want to think about our past, well, if you really knew my past, you wouldn't ask me to make disciples. Jesus knows your past, and he still has you right there in the Great Commission. Well, if you really knew all the ways that I want to be comfortable and orient my life and get it figured out and dialed in and my priorities and my schedule and my busyness and yada yada, really, it's just, I mean, let's just be honest. Those are just excuses. We looked at that last week. And Jesus just pushes right through that. He's like, let's just be honest. What do you love? What are you orienting? What are you building your life around? So the preference thing just kind of gets demolished. Jesus tears it up. It doesn't matter your busyness. It doesn't matter because he's even telling you in your busyness, make disciples or your shortcomings. Some of you might sit in this room and go like, what do I really have to offer? What do I really have to give? What do I really have to contribute? And Jesus says, you have all you will ever need because I came and died for you. I bled for you. I lived a perfect life for you. And then I rose from the dead so that you would have new life, so that you would become a new creation in Christ and you'd be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have all authority on heaven and earth released into your life because you're a new creation in Christ to go and make disciples. This is the charge of the local church. So how do we do this? I wanna give you guys a definition so we're clear on this as well. This is what um, a definition come up, it'll come up here on the screen of, of how we make disciples. So how do we make disciples? Sharing gospel truths through relationships. Sharing gospel truths through relationships. Now what this is and what I believe the Bible teaches us through its methodology along with its theological prescriptions of saying this is what Jesus commands, but its methodology, when we look at Jesus' methods, when we look at how he spent his time, when we look at his practices, we begin to see relational discipleship relational discipleship. And this relational discipleship is altogether quite intentional. It's quite intentional. Now, Jesus had all sorts of ways he could have fulfilled his ministry, right? He could have done a big sky riding thing all over Jerusalem and Rome to say, here's God. I mean, he, he could have released a pamphlet. He could have put out a bestseller. He could have gone on a speaking tour, but rather he spent his time in relationships and he invited people to follow he invited people to just come along with him and join him in frequency of time spent, of proximity, come near me and sit by the campfire as we travel around with one another, as we do life with one another. And then he spoke truth to them at key junctures in their life on a regular basis. Think of Paul. Think of Paul. You guys know Paul. Paul went on missionary journey after missionary journey. And as he was going on his missionary journey, he brought guys like Timothy along with him. 
And what did he do? How did Timothy get discipled? Timothy didn't get discipled by just filling his head, only filling his head up with knowledge and information or just conforming his behavior or going to Bible college or sitting through a bunch of classes, but rather Timothy learned by example. He was in Paul's life. Paul spent time. Paul invested in him. Paul connected with him. Paul shared gospel truths through relationship to change him. Think about your life. In fact, if we were to go around this room for you, most of you that are believers, you would be able to identify key people in your life that stopped and knew you and you had access to and you could watch and you could observe and their model and their example was altogether transformative for you. They knew your name, they knew your struggles, they knew where you were broken, they knew where you needed help, they knew where you needed to hear the gospel. And that had a powerful effect on you. It was transformative. I mean, in, in some ways, discipleship is, is a lot like parenting. There's a new life that comes into existence. You're born again. There's a new life. And from there, imitation sets about, just like a toddler begins to imitate their mom and dad. That's what mom does. That's what dad does. I want to try to do that as well. Proximity. Think about all the time a child spends with its parent. 18 years of proximity of being around them, of seeing their ups and downs, of seeing behind the scenes, of seeing when they fail, of seeing when they succeed, of seeing when they get it right. It's not just a time slot ordeal. It's not just once a week, but rather it's a lifestyle. Character and practical instructions unfold. I mean, I don't know about you, but I spend lots of time with my girls right now working on their character and practical instruction and teaching them wisdom about life and, and how to go about it. And then lots and lots of encouragement. If you think about it, if you think about it, if you just look, totality-wise, quantitatively, Jesus spent more time in relational discipleship than anything else he did during his ministry. Anything else. That should speak to us, right? Jesus gathers 12 guys and he says, come along with me. Now, I'm not just gonna put you through a class or give you a stack of books to read, but I'm gonna be in your life and you're gonna be in mine. You're gonna be able to observe. And that's what he means, even in the word observe in the Great Commission, is you get to see in. You get to be near. You get to truly know who I am. And he, even within that, he pulls three guys out of that. And he says, you're going to be my really close inner circle. I want to see you guys really develop. I want to bring you up into these moments of spiritual engagement, such as the transfiguration where you get to see me in my full glory. I mean, this is altogether stunning. This is Jesus's model. This is how he goes about it. And why? Why? Because every single one of us in this room, we're a relational being. We hunger for relationships. We need relationships. Why? Because you're made in the image of a relational God. Your transformation, your development, your being conformed more into the image of Jesus will happen primarily through your relationships. Your relationship with God and your relationship with others. It's where you're meant to be transformed. In all the mundane and all the ordinary of all the day-to-day -day stuff, you are being transformed. In your relationship with Jesus and in your relationship with others. Our relationships have a massive impact on us, no? I mean, think about this for a second. I was um, just thinking about my own life. When I, um, I, I've almost become numb to like advertisements. So if someone tells me about a new product or a new restaurant or something like that, I mean, we, we get bombarded. The average American gets over 5,000 advertisements a month directed at them. 5,000 advertisements a month. But yet if I have one friend who I trust and know, recommend something to me, tell me something about something, want to uh, inform me about something, they have my ear. I'm willing to listen. Good news travels through relationships. Look at the meager way that Jesus began his ministry. He starts walking off in John 1, and he just begins calling guys to follow them. 
He sees Andrew and he sees Simon and he says, hey, why don't you guys just come follow me? It's just a beautiful invitation. You don't have all the answers yet. I haven't told you the entire plan. I haven't even told you what's going to await me. I haven't even given you all the, the ideas of where we're going, but just come and follow me. Just come and follow me. And what do they do? Andrew and Simon in John 1, they run back and they tell others because good news always travels through relationships. Why? Because we listen more carefully and we're more heavily influenced. We are made to be transformed by relationships. Jesus gets at this truth, especially for us as disciples. I want us to look at, uh, come up here on the screen for us, John 13. Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples. The Passover is occurring and Jesus sit down. You gotta understand, right before this, Jesus has just washed their feet. Jesus has washed dirty, nasty, stinky, desert guy feet. That's what he's done. He's washed their feet. And now he's saying, if you guys really want to know what it means to be a disciple, if you really want to know what it means to follow me, here's what it means. A new command I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Francis Schaeffer, the great um, apologist, he said that this is the final apologetic when the world is watching. Check that out. Jesus even says in verse 35, by this, all people will know. What he's saying is when the world watches in, when the world looks at Christians, when the world looks at church, they have a right to judge us based on the way we love one another. He's saying the world's going to spy in and I'm giving them permission. I'm actually telling them, go ahead and judge my people based on how they love one another. And that's how you'll know if they're really my people. And check this out, it's a command as well. Jesus is saying this is a command. Love one another. And what does it mean? I mean, we, this isn't rocket science. You guys know this. I'm not breaking any news here. But loving others is, is relationships. It's the hallmark of being a disciple. And why? Because a model is way better than a lecture. And if we love one another, if we're willing to demonstrate that love, not just in a sentimental way, not just in a very cheesy way or a superficial way, not in a fake friendly way, but really I'm going to get into the gritty, dirty part of your life and my love is going to be demonstrated. You'll actually see my love in action. That is a powerful testimony to often a very apathetic world where people feel lonely and isolated. I mean, just think about that. Jesus is, is washing these feet. How much more gritty and dirty and vulnerable can that get? And what does Jesus do? Jesus enters right into their messiest part, their dirty feet. And he says, if you're gonna love one another, it has to be this way too. You're gonna enter into the gritty and dirty parts of people's lives. And you're not gonna run away from that. You're not gonna shy away. You're gonna continue to fellowship. In fact, you're gonna eat a meal with people that are a mess and that are broken and that need to know my love. Love one another. Really, this is the defining aspect of being a disciple of Jesus. Do we love one another? Um, here's an illustration I want to give you guys, and some pictures will come up here on the screen in a second. I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago. I was just talking about the idea of, of um, yeah, so the, here's the Indiana Jones Bridge, right? You guys seen that? Like kind of that rickety bridge. When you look at that bridge, um, think about it. Would you want to drive a semi-truck over that bridge? Probably not, right? Not, not unless you're a daredevil. You probably wouldn't even want to walk over that bridge, right? You're not going to want to walk over that bridge even. Now, once again, coming back to our definition of what it means to make a disciple. How do we make a disciple? Well, a disciple is someone who's delivering, is sharing gospel truths through relationships. 
And so I think of that bridge as almost a, an, an illustration, an example of that bridge needs to be really strong. That relationship, if the, if the bridge is what we think of as a relationship into someone's heart, into their life, that bridge needs to be really strong in order to deliver those gospel truths. If I'm going to speak into someone's life, if I'm going to honestly confront them at the places where they fail the most, where their weaknesses are exposed, where they need the most help, I need to have a strong relationship with them. If you're going to deliver what feels like often a gospel bomb or a gospel truth into someone's life, you better have a substantive relationship with them. I mean, just think, if you're at Starbucks and you just tap someone on the shoulder and you're like, hey man, I got to tell you something. Uh, There's a piece of lint on your shirt. No big deal because that's not a heavy truth. But what if you want to tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, I just want you to know I've been following you around. I've been watching your family and you're really arrogant and selfish. How do you think that's going to play out? What's that person going to say to you? You don't know me. Who are you? Why? Because the relationship, the bridge is weak. It's not strong. And I don't know about you, but the people that have the greatest access to my heart, to my life, it's because there's a very strong relational bridge. Let's show the next one. Golden State Bridge. This bridge, on the other hand, that's robust and strong and has great support and has been built with lots of time and energy and resources, you can drive semis over. Now think about that. Who in your life are you building relationships with? And as you seek to disciple them, as you seek to point them toward Jesus, as you seek to love them and and, then tell them more about the gospel, are you developing a strong relationship with them? Relationships create a bridge over which the word of God can travel and be heard and received. As we love one another, Jesus even said, this is what it means to be a disciple, that we love one another. Loving relationships are the bridge to communicate the gospel and begin meaningful transformation. So who are you doing that with? Who are you building relationships with so you can speak gospel truths into their life? And this doesn't have to be just through a program at church. This doesn't have to be just through a home group only, but it's meant to expand out into all areas of your life that you're intentionally building a relationship with people. And in these relationships, here's what begins to happen. I don't know about you, but in my most significant relationships where the bridge is super strong, where those people have all sorts of access to my soul, I begin to have a renewed mind. I begin to see things differently based on my interactions with them. My character begins to transform. My relationships begin to feel different. My habits are exposed and sometimes even changed. I'm convicted and encouraged to begin to use my gifts to serve and to love others. Influence happens in relationships. And check this out. I mean, all the things, all the things that Jesus is trying to do in your life and in my life, they're highly relational, right? I mean, think about the one another's that are all throughout the New Testament. Forgive one another, love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, exhort one another. How many of those can be done in isolation? None, really. The whole entire thing of discipleship is relational. Your discipleship happens in relationship. To say I do discipleship on my own, Lone Ranger style, is right back into that behavior information model of saying if I just get my behavior right or I just get enough information, but Jesus is saying that will never deal with heart transformation. So let's not miss the big E on the I chart. As a church, as a people, let's have a heart, let's have a posture of saying, who am I going to disciple? Because right now, every single one of us in this room has people that God has sovereignly placed around us for us to make disciples of. 
There are people at your work. There are people in your community. There are people in your neighborhood that you can begin to build a stronger and stronger relationship with so you can have greater and greater access to the parts of their heart, the parts of their life that really need to be transformed. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you really go for the hard parts of someone's life, the parts that really are the most sensitive and difficult and often the most painful, I mean, when you, when you push someone's idols over, the, the initial reaction is gonna be pretty, pretty emotional. I mean, I remember confronting a friend of mine years ago and uh, the fallout was three months of silence. Three months of like, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, where are you at? I feel like I'm being faithful. I felt like I had the relationship. I felt like you were calling me to lean into that. Three months later, I get a phone call from him and he's like, man, I realized that you were disrupting some habits and some patterns in my life that I just really wasn't ready to face. But I'm glad you were willing to lean into that. And I'm, I know that you love me. As the proverb says, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. So church, let's not miss the big E on the I chart, okay? We are here to make disciples. We're here to use our relationships to make disciples. We're here to strengthen relationships with people that are far from God or people that are near to God or people that are in our community so that we can further point them to Jesus, to see them conform, to become more like Jesus. You were made for this. You were absolutely made for this. When I think about sometimes the church in this room right now, there are so many spiritual gifts that God's given. I mean, if we were to do a spiritual gift inventory of this room, God has been exceptionally generous to us. God has given people with all sorts of talents and abilities and loves. And God has richly blessed us as a church. Now, what are we gonna do with that? How are we gonna steward that? How are we gonna use that so that more people are transformed and conformed to become like Jesus? Um, I think almost, uh, I had a neighbor growing up and he had this old Mustang in his garage and it hadn't run like 25 years. And uh, I came over and I was just talking to him about it one day and he had a cover on it and he was like, yeah, the, the engine doesn't start anymore. And you know, I'd have to do a tune up and all these other things. And I'm not a car guy, but I, I basically just got the gist. Like the, the thing hadn't run in a long time. But here's the thing, I was, I was probably 17, 18 at the time. I could tell this was a really cool car with a great engine. And what a shame it was that it was gathering dust in an old garage. And I just think so much, you know, that's the church sometimes. Here we are gathering dust. Here we are sitting in a barn when we're meant to be out on the road of discipleship. We're meant to be out there engine revving, using the gifts that God's given us to make disciples. Friends, if you find yourself at times a little stagnant or frustrated or tired or just feeling dry spiritually, it could be that you're a Mustang in the barn, gathering dust. And the Lord's inviting you. He's commissioning you. He's telling you the reason you might feel a little dry and dusty is because you're not meant to be in the garage. You're meant to be out on the mission field. You're meant to be all engines revving, using the spiritual gifts that I've given you to make disciples. That's where all the fun is. That's where all the adventure is. That's where you're needed. Those gifts weren't given to just bury in a hole, but rather to lead out into mission and to see other people transformed. I would hate, I would hate for us to stand before Jesus one day and say, like, we stayed safe inside the garage with a cover on ourselves gathering dust. When Jesus invites us into the mission field, I mean, we get one life. We get one life to use that, to take some risks, to take some chances. Another, another barrier I think that often comes along is this, this, this distinction often that feels like ministries for professionals, 
Ministries for Professionals. Uh, Ephesians 4.12, which will come up on the screen, says this. And this is Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. So he's writing, and he doesn't want them to get this wrong. He doesn't want them to be a bunch of old Mustangs gathering dust. But he says, your pastors, your leaders, your church staff, they're not there to disciple your kids. They're not there to save your friends, but rather they're there to equip you to do those good works. He said, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Do you notice what he says? Pastors, your job is not to do all the ministry. Pastors, your job is not to tell everyone about Jesus, but rather your job is to equip. Your job is to coach. Imagine if the coach runs onto the field during the football game. He's in the wrong place. He's meant to be calling the plays. He's meant to be training the players. He's meant to be sending people out onto the playing field so that they can make a difference. That's the job of the church. The job of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. For the building up of the body of Christ, that's what we're here for. We're here to be built up so we can be sent out on mission. There are so many people right here in our city in Midlothian and Mansfield and Waxahachie and the surrounding Cedar Hill that need to know about Jesus, that need to be discipled, that we can use our relationships with to deliver gospel truths to them, to tell them about grace, to tell them about forgiveness, to give them hope, to remind them there's a God who loves them. And that's what he's calling us to. And this, 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 sometimes this mindset of, I, of, of, of professionalization also leads to a spirit of passivity, of passivity. We can get very comfortable and sometimes we just get very used to sitting in rows, hearing a, maybe a sermon like this and then feeling like we did our spiritual duty. But rather, rather, this is the sending point. We go from here commissioned to go into the places that God has sovereignly prepared in advance for us to do good works. That's what we're doing here this morning. We're getting ready to go into the mission field. And you, you, my friend, have been given all that you need in Christ. He's been abundantly kind to you to give you all you need to go and make disciples, not in a year, not in two years, not when you get your act together, but today. But today, imagine if the church was unleashed. Imagine if it wasn't driven so much by, I'll wait till the church develops a program or a process for that, but rather I can build a relationship and I can love someone and I can connect with someone and I can begin to affect change in their life because the Lord wants to use you. And that's where all the fun is. That's where all the joy is. So I want to be careful with what I'm about to say making this last point because I'm a Bible guy. I love the Bible. I think every single one of us should be in the Bible daily, reading our Bible, connecting with Jesus, having sweet communion with Christ through his word. But here's the thing, when when his word is stored up in our life, when we go from quiet time to quiet time to quiet time, day after day after day, it becomes stagnant. And here's the thing about communing with Jesus, about a quiet time, about having Bible in your life, is it's meant to flow out. Now think of like a pond, like an old pond that gets, the, the water begins to get musty and it gets stale and it, it just gets noxious, but rather a stream that's constantly flowing. Man, the life that comes from that, how refreshing it is. I think so much often in the Christian life when, when, when we just fill up, so quote unquote by saying, I went to church, I did the spiritual duties that I was supposed to do. I have my quiet time. It's like reading books about cooking or hiking, but never actually making a meal or climbing a mountain. It's like a water pump that's become broken. It's like a generator that has no outflow. What Jesus is doing when he wants to transform your soul 
is to pour you out onto others. Now, last objection that I think some of us have when we think about using our lives, leveraging our relationships to impact others with gospel truths is this. We've had a past experience that didn't go very well, right? I tried that. I reached out to them. I tried to disciple them. I wanted to connect with them. I wanted to have some intentionality, but it didn't go well. Okay. (laughs) Do it again. Try again. Here's what I do know. You had a bad meal at one time in your life, right? And you ate again right? Yeah, you gave that a try again. You had a bad haircut in your life, but you know what? You got another one, didn't you? We often have a bad experience, but the hope of the gospel is that it's worth it to keep stepping into the mess, to keep trying, to keep initiating, to keep pursuing people, to keep using our relationships, even if you have those moments where you felt rejected or let down or it didn't go the way you wanted or it was awkward or it didn't work, but rather to press on, to press forward. Why? Because you have a God who loves you and you're secure in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. So no matter what the outcome is, your job is to be faithful. And inside of your faithfulness, all sorts of incredible things begin to happen. Because here's the thing about making disciples. That is your discipleship. As you make disciples, you're being discipled. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. And so much of the good stuff of the Christian life is found inside those moments. Uh, The early church, I don't know, I, I love church history. So just bear with me for one minute. The early church, uh, think about it once again. If you were to write this down on a business plan, or if I was to, to throw this out at you, you'd say, man, this is not going to go well. Jesus is standing there. He's giving the great commission to 11 guys. Why, why only 11 as well? What happened to the 12th? Well, Judas just killed himself. So if you ever think like, hey, Jesus was a perfect disciple maker. Well, look at Judas. That one didn't end very well, did it? So even Jesus has these moments where the outcome isn't necessarily what he would want. And so what does he do? Jesus gives them a commission and he doesn't have a lot going for him. It's not like he has a lot of power. It's not like he has prestige. It's not like these people are going to be well received. It's not like he has a a big apparatus and infrastructure and game plan for how this is actually going to happen other than you guys are going to go viral. You guys are going to go viral. We don't have a big organization. We're not going to have a huge building. We don't have a major platform. We don't have a cable news TV show. We don't have any of that. All we have is you. Jesus is saying, you are the plan. And these aren't the the best of the best guys. It's not like they were the ultimate winners of society, but rather they were fishermen and tax collectors and other people that were cast offs in society. And what Jesus says is all of you, because all authority has been given to me, you're going to go into a world that's hostile toward you and you're going to begin to make disciples. And so what happens throughout the early church? The early church, because of this incredible idea, this truth, this reality that Jesus has conquered death, that he's killed death, that he's put to death, death. That idea is so powerful. It's so altogether life-altering. It's cosmic changing that it goes into the hearts of people and it begins to change cities. And it begins to change cities and it sweeps throughout Rome. So much so that eventually Rome is facing an uprising because all these areas have become Christian. They'd all become followers of Jesus in spite of being persecuted, in spite of often being crucified, in spite of often being beaten and losing their possessions. The the, the, the message of the gospel could not be stopped. And it was all done through relationships. Relationships. It was highly relational. It was viral. The early church was the first thing ever to really go viral, so much so that it became an uprising that began to change nations. 
And here you and I stand in a 2,000-year-old viral movement of seeing lives transformed, of seeing lives changed through relationships. So who for you today is that person that you're building a relationship with, that you're intentionally going after and say, I want to build a relationship with you. I want to build trust. I want to build credibility. I want you to know that I love you. And over time, I want to be there in the messiest parts of your life so that I can show you where Jesus is, that I can show you the good news of grace so that gospel truths can seep into those most broken and difficult places. I, I would hate for us to leave here this morning without it being super practical what we've talked about the last two weeks. So at the door on your way out, we've got a handout that's gonna have all of this that I've talked about for the last two weeks on just a handout for you. And I would encourage you to just put this in your Bible, take it with you, and it's really just a one-page handout to make it super practical of what it means to make disciples. Stonegate, I don't know about you, but our legacy, our lineage, when I look at church history, is we've always been a viral movement. We've always been a family of believers that have been at our best, not when our programs are the best, but rather when our relationships are the strongest. So who are you gonna love? Who are you gonna disciple? You have everything you need in Christ to do that today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you've made disciples of us, that you haven't given up on us, that the good work that you've begun, you're sure to complete. That you love us, that you're for us, and that you've given us a great commission so that our lives have meaning and purpose and worth and excitement and joy. And not only have you given us a commission, but you've given us gifts, gifts to fulfill that very commission. So we have all we need in you to go and make disciples, to leverage our relationships for gospel impact. So God, may you push through every barrier, every objection, every obstacle that our wayward hearts would muster up, that we would be faithful, that we would obey, that we would trust, that we would lean into you and know that you're with us. And so God, when we see you face to face one day, I know all of us long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And God, may you, may you be gracious to us as we seek to share your grace with others. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.